Physician-assisted treatment uh, approaches for alcohol and opioid use disorders. This particular training is classified as MAT-A. Uh, the A there designates that this is a, one part of a series of trainings that we, we've developed related to medication-assisted treatment uh, and other aspects of substance use treatment. We're going to focus on kind of the, the introductory knowledge components of medication-assisted treatment. Uh, and I'll give you a little bit more of a breakdown as we get into the training, but that's what the A denotes in that particular title. Once more, my name is Andrew Kurtz. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. <clears throat> my pronouns are he, him, and his. I'm also a clinical specialist with UCLA Integrated Substance Abuse Programs. We're going to be spending the next three hours talking about different medications for alcohol and opioid use disorders. And we'll, we'll incorporate some of the other substances that you may encounter in treatment into that as well. But our primary focus is uh, beginning to conceptualize opioid use issues, alcohol use issues, and then what specifically medications are designed to do. Uh, we'll take a look at some of the research around the efficacy of those medications. And we'll also be thinking about within that, um, not just the research component, but how do I talk about this with clients? How do I use potentially this information in a way that enhances willingness or motivation to initiate these medications, uh, potentially enhancing consistency with these medications? That's a, a little bit of what we're, we're trying to balance as we go through today. Uh, I'm assuming that many of you probably are not prescribing these medications, and we'll take a look at what your roles are in just a little bit. Uh, and to that end, it's useful to think less about the, the kind of medical aspect of knowing how to prescribe these medications and more about what do I do from a behavioral standpoint? What do I do from an engagement standpoint? How do I incorporate this into the treatment that I might be delivering from a behavioral health standpoint or a mental health standpoint to increase the likelihood of positive outcomes in treatment. So uh, again, we'll, we'll continue to talk about that as we move forward. No relevant disclosures to make in terms of financial interests that conflict with or commercial interests that uh, conflict with this particular training. When we go through this, consider your role specifically, consider what it is that you do uh, and bring up those situations where you feel like, I, I don't know exactly how I would translate this with a client. I don't exactly know what I'd do in a situation if somebody weren't uh, maintaining medication compliance. And we can we can discuss some of the options that either others have considered or that you might be able to consider as you're working with uh, individuals on your caseload. And, and we'll talk about uh, tobacco to start with. We'll then look at opioids, uh, opioid use issues. We'll conceptualize opioids. And then we'll, we'll wrap up uh, by talking about alcohol uh, and alcohol use issues and what medications are available for alcohol use issues. Uh, we will incorporate as we go through some information about combating stigma. I think it is impossible to have a conversation, for better or worse, about opioid use, medi use disorder medications without focusing on stigma and, and destigmatizing uh, not just medications for substance use issues, but uh, substance use disorder treatment itself. Uh, so that will be embedded as we go through the training today. We'll, we'll talk about stigma in different ways. Uh, a lot of the, the contextualization for some of the data that I'm going to be giving you will aim to 
understand the data, but also think about that in a way that allows us to use that information to further destigmatize or potentially even demystify uh, what we're talking about related to opioid use issues or medications. I think there's a lot of misinformation about substance use disorders in general uh, in the popula in the general public. Uh, I think there is a lot of misinformation about medications for substance use issues, uh, not just in the in the general population, but even among treatment providers. Um, we've been doing a variation of this training since I started at UCLA ISAP um, six and a half years ago. And, and without fail, every time I do this training, there's there's some question, there's some comment that comes up uh, that indicates that maybe somebody isn't quite entirely on board with the use of medications for this kind of treatment. Um, I think it's, it's great if you're in that position, uh, this is the right training to be attending. Uh, and I think having those conversations where maybe there is some skepticism about the efficacy of these medications, where there is potentially some concern about uh, the use of these medications or how to talk about them, that shows that there's some critical thought around how do we enhance our practices so that we are delivering good care, so that we are providing information to people that allow them to make an informed decision. So don't shy away from that as we're going through this. Uh, if there's something that you've heard, if there's something that maybe you think is true or you're not sure if it's true, bring that up. And you can always you can always use that, that mechanism of, you know, I, I heard from a colleague or I heard from a friend that this is uh, a part of using these medications. And so you don't have to necessarily implicate yourself in that way. But uh, those kinds of questions, as I said, are, are really relevant and useful for this, this learning process that we're going through related to medications. I'm going to present a, a thought exercise for you all now. Uh, and just think about your reaction to this. What is your response, your immediate kind of emotional reaction? What is your immediate reaction to hearing this? Uh, in this situation, I want you to imagine that you're visiting with your sister who has recently had a visit to the doctor for numbness and tingling in her feet. She says that her doctor told her that she has diabetes and that she's stupid for letting her diet get so out of control. The doctor's recommendation is that she see a dietitian and gain some self-control. Once she does that, he'll consider treating her diabetes more directly with medicine. The doctor tells her that treatment with insulin really won't do her any good uh, unless she's truly ready. And he'll know that that's the fact when she starts to lose some weight. The doctor tells her to come back when she really wants to change. And no follow-up appointment is scheduled. So you've had this interaction with your sister. She's reporting this to you. What's your reaction to, to hearing this experience that she had? Anger, yeah. I think that's, that's probably the, the first thing that would come up is immediate kind of, maybe even almost shock that this is the experience that the individual had. Anger is certainly uh, one of the emotions that would come up. Yeah, kind of immediately firing that doctor and going elsewhere. Right. Advocate for herself and change doctors immediately. Good. Changing the doctor. Yeah. Good. Uh, and so a lot of you kind of have that initial reaction of this is not OK. We're, we're absolutely not going back to that doctor again. Uh, I'll be upset. It's not OK for the doctor to have that type of reaction to her health. Good. Uh, it's really poor bedside manner, to, to say the least. Right. I think that's an over oversimplification of what's happening in this particular scenario. Um, I like uh, Marlies, I think I would feel really angry 
that uh, somebody that I care about would have had this experience. Uh, certainly, it's not what you expect when you go to the doctor. It's not going to be helpful to this individual. Uh, what's the implication of her having this kind of experience? The implication, I don't even know if it's an implication. I think it's a direct statement that this is her fault, that the things that are happening to her are that it is a result of her inability to manage herself in a particular way. Uh, so a lot of hopelessness, right? Uh, feeling defeated, a fair amount of shame that would come along with this. None of which are outcomes that we would want somebody to experience when they're going in to see a, a health provider, whether it's a physical health provider, behavioral health provider, or a mental health provider. Uh, I think that we recognize the immediate impact on the individual's sense of themselves, their efficacy to to advocate for oneself. Uh, she's not going to feel comfortable uh, going back to that doctor if if she were to choose to go back to that doctor or if she had to go back to that doctor because there were no other resources available. Uh, that's going to impact her care. It's going to impact her sense of self. She's going to feel uh, hopeless. She's going to feel shameful about how she's doing in terms of, of managing her, her diabetes. And she's going to feel like it's her fault. Again, if she's going back to the doctor because there is no alternative for her, she doesn't know that she can ob obtain this care uh, from a different place. She presumes it's going to be the same. She's probably going to be a little hesitant to talk to that doctor about what's going on. She's probably not going to be as truthful. And I think that carries over into other interactions that she might have with other health professionals. So she fires this doctor. And those of you who care about um, care about your sister, you're going to recommend that she moves forward and that she doesn't continue to see this doctor because clearly this doctor does not have her best interests in mind. Uh, so we're going to take her to a different physician. We're going to encourage her to go see someone else. She's still going to feel a little bit of that embarrassment, a little bit of that shame, a little bit of that guilt, and that's going to impact her willingness to engage in treatment. And so there's two different components here that I think about, one of which is the impact on the individual and their sense of trust and their sense of, of safety when they're coming into services. Do we really have their best interest in mind? Well, clearly this doctor doesn't really seem to, to be doing that. The other component of this is when a client comes to you, you're not just seeing that client and they're presenting issues. You're seeing the culmination of every other treatment episode that they've had, every other treatment interaction that they've had with a provider up to that point. And so you're not just navigating the individual's own experiences. You're navigating to some extent the residual effect of other providers' biases that may have been present. Uh, we talk about this in terms of biases. Sometimes it shows up as, as outright discrimination or potentially even systems level traumas. Uh, we have to be cognizant of that to an extent. And, and that's where the conversation about stigma comes in. There's enough misinformation about substance use treatment and mental health treatment in, in the general public to begin with. I don't wanna be in a position where I'm not informed about a particular intervention, about a particular uh, a treatment approach that I inadvertently add to that or I, I inadvertently uh, uh, reinforce a misconception or a stigma. To generalize this a little bit further, um, this would be unheard of to 
think that a physician would treat a client in this way or a patient in this way. What changes in this scenario for you? If we change the example from diabetes to substance use, and if we change the doctor in the situation to a substance use counselor, potentially even a physician who might be dispensing medications, what changes in your reaction to the scenario, if anything? We need to treat people with respect, absolutely. I, I agree with you, and I, I hope that many of you feel kind of that same, the same way, that no matter what kind of health intervention or uh, environment we're in, we should be thinking about treating people with respect regardless. At the same time, there are still pockets of substance use treatment that rely upon an outdated and kind of old school method of this, this kind of tough love approach, uh, where we kind of overemphasize the tough and leave out the love. And we, it's very much fear-based, shame-based, that you need to suffer more uh, to really demonstrate that you're ready to get services. And I think that that is obviously a significant mismatch with where we're at as a treatment field, that we recognize that doesn't really benefit anyone. And, and you'll hear from substance use providers, you'll sometimes hear this from mental health providers or even physicians that, oh, you know, I, I went through that, I went through that kind of program and it helped me. Okay, fine. I, I can respect and acknowledge that you have had some success. But generally speaking, one of the things that I want to do is I never want to subject someone to shame and guilt as a precondition for needing uh, or obtaining some type of help. That's one of the things that we do inadvertently, I think, when we, we perpetuate misinformation or stigmatize, uh, stigmatizing information, uh, particularly around substance use issues, particularly around medications, is even if we don't intend to, we inadvertently reinforce this idea that the person is not right, that there's something wrong with the individual and that they need to do better uh, before they're, they're ready or able to, to fully receive the services that, that we have at our disposal. So a, I want us to think about that, and I'm, I'm confident that none of you do this, yet I think we also have a responsibility to some extent as providers to make sure that our colleagues aren't sharing misinformation, to make sure that our colleagues aren't uh, perpetuating myths that don't uh, advance the opportunity to use uh, what are really effective tools in our our tool belts. Uh, good. So we'll we'll kind of leave this vignette behind. Uh, I'll open it up. Any other reactions? Any other questions or thoughts about this? And then we'll move forward. Let's talk a little bit about tobacco and behavioral health. So we're going to start with tobacco just uh, because it's something that doesn't get a lot of attention typically when we're talking about substance use issues. We tend to to uh, either forgive or kind of ignore tobacco use issues that come up uh, in substance use treatment. Uh, we tend to focus more on uh, things like opioid use issues, like alcohol use issues, stimulant use issues. I know that when I was uh, doing um, different research studies at UCLA on first episode schizophrenia, we would always screen individuals, are, you know, are you using any cannabis products? Are you using any other illicit substances? But we designate smoke breaks for individuals because without that, they wouldn't be able to focus on the different, like the extensive cognitive batteries that we'd have them going through. And so we'd actually design our treatment studies with 
smoke breaks built in. Uh, we wouldn't call them smoke breaks because I don't want to advocate that anybody's smoking, but we knew what everybody was doing, particularly individuals with, with schizophrenia. Um, I would say 95% of those individuals were smoking regularly, but we tend not to focus on that from an intervention standpoint or from a discussion standpoint because other issues seem to be more prevalent or our focus shifts to other issues like the fact that the individual is is floridly psychotic or actively psychotic. Yet we recognize that tobacco does have impact on individuals' health. Uh, tobacco leads to more deaths than motor vehicle crashes, drug overdoses, and gun violence combined. It doesn't have the immediate impact. And so from kind of a socio-cultural lens, something that takes potentially decades to kill someone isn't going to be or isn't going to feel as urgent or as prescient as something like motor vehicle crashes, drug overdoses or gun violence. Uh, it is by far and continues to be the leading cause of preventable death in the United States. Uh, of the 480,000 annual deaths from tobacco, nearly half of those deaths are uh, among people with mental illness and substance use disorders. For individuals in treatment for substance use disorders, more than half die from tobacco-related illnesses. Um, I can generally tell, you know, we do that poll at the beginning of a session, and, and this is an overgeneralization, but it may speak to some of you. Um, I can generally tell when I'm doing a session for individuals who are in recovery versus individuals who are not in recovery. I don't think any of you are on camera, so this doesn't really work at this point in time, but uh, generally speaking, I can tell when I'm doing a session for individuals in recovery because a lot of them, the majority of them, will be vaping during the session. Uh, again, it's, the, it's part of the process of recovery. People often uh, move from a substance to tobacco, or they will have used tobacco concurrently with a particular substance, and they'll get treatment for that substance, for that opioid issue, that alcohol issue, uh, that stimulant use issue. Uh, but tobacco isn't typically focused on. And it's seen potentially as the lesser of two evils. It's seen as something that's not going to directly impact them right now. Uh, there's also misinformation about vaping and the safety of that. Um, but you see in individuals uh, in treatment for substance use issues, a significant number who are continuing to use tobacco-related products or things like vapes. Among people treated for opioid use disorders, uh, smokers' death rates are four times that of non-smokers. So the combination there is, is particularly concerning uh, beyond the ongoing health impacts. Luckily, we know that there are a number of different types of treatments that work. Uh, there are cognitive behavioral interventions that work well for nicotine. Uh, we also have nicotine replacement therapies that have quite a bit of research behind them. Uh, these are nicotine agonists in different formulations and different, uh, different methods of delivery. Nicotine replacement therapy reduces the uncomfortable feelings that come up when an individual discontinues smoking. The idea being that if you can manage that withdrawal, somebody will be significantly less likely to go back to the thing that they know will alleviate those symptoms. Um, and if, you, if you've ever smoked before, uh, one, I apologize because this might be triggering you a little bit. Two, you're pro or if you know somebody who smoked, you're familiar with those patterns that people have. 
the regularity with which they they will smoke, um, the the time of day at which they have to have a cigarette, the pairing of a cigarette with meals, those are like clockwork because without those those regular uh, influxes of nicotine, an individual will start to feel the withdrawal symptoms. And the way that you manage that is to have a new influx of nicotine. Uh, so these nicotine replacement therapies will try to alleviate that constant need for uh, um, additional uh, doses of nicotine to stave off the uh, discomfort of withdrawal. Essentially what you're talking about is you're replacing a deadly drug, such as tobacco, with a safer medication. I'll make this clear as we go through today, but I'm always careful to distinguish, when I'm talking with a client, distinguish between drug and medicine. Those two terms are often used interchangeably. But I'm, I'm really careful that when I'm talking about a, a particular substance that is prescribed by a physician, used as intended for a medical purpose, I'm, I'm going to refer to that as a medication. If somebody is using an illicit substance or they're using a prescription uh, medication not as intended, I will refer to that as a drug. I make that distinction, again, because I don't want somebody to conflate the two. I don't want somebody to think, well, well, all medications are drugs anyway, so why should we believe Big Pharma when they're who got us into this issue in the first place? That's one of the things that I tend to hear when I'm doing these kinds of, of discussions or these kinds of talks. Uh, part of the way that we unravel the misconception that the two are the same is by making sure that our terms are distinct. I think it also helps to destigmatize that medications really do have a valuable purpose in treatment and are not the same as somebody going and getting heroin on the street and using that. Uh, so I, I try to be careful about the language that I use and I be careful, I'm careful about the terminology uh, that I'm using when I'm referring to either of these, uh, these considerations. Uh, the two medications that are used to reduce withdrawals and cravings, uh, bupropion, which uh, has a dopamine release component to it. You've also seen this used in uh, anti or in depression, depression treatment. Uh, it's also used in uh, other types of, of substance use issues. And then varenicolin, which is um, Chantix, I think is the, the most commonly known uh, formulation of that. These are different medications that will assist with that ongoing kind of physiological need for nicotine. We're going to talk a little bit about the brain in just a second, but essentially what we're, we're getting at is this physiological, this biophysiological need for homeostasis. Uh, we can talk about that at a neurochemical level. We can talk about that at a behavioral level, but the medications are designed to even out the availability of nicotine-like substances in the body so that an individual doesn't experience the withdrawal symptoms or those ongoing cravings. There are a number of different types of nicotine replacement therapies, uh, patches, gums, lozenges, inhalers, nasal sprays. A lot of this is available over the counter as well, readily available uh, in, in different drug stores. Um, across the country and across the world. You're familiar with a lot of these. You can read through these different, uh, these different therapies on your own, but uh, this is simply to highlight that there are a number of different options available for somebody who's looking at trying to discontinue their nicotine use. 
Smoking cessation and substance use treatment is, again, it's important to focus on that we tend not to do it. Just like all substance use disorders, relapse can happen with smoking cessation. Uh, that it's important for the individual to have some ongoing support in some way, whether that's nicotine replacement therapy, uh, some sort of support group, some sort of behavioral intervention, or a combination of those. Medications in combination with counseling, things like CBT or smoking cessation programs, significantly improve uh, rates of abstinence. Quitting smoking during the first year of substance use treatment has also predicted positive outcomes in, in substance use treatment. So smokers who stopped were more likely to be in remission from, substance use, from their substance use disorder at one year. Uh, they've also found that it does not impair the outcome of the presenting substance use issue. If you encounter individuals who are dealing with nicotine uh, use issues, uh, I would point them in the direction of different smoking cessation resources. Those are numerous. They are available to you. Uh, part of the reason that we're talking about nicotine cessation or smoking cessation is, one, to bring up uh, something that we tend not to focus on in treatment, and two, I want you to reflect on your reaction to this conversation about smoking, uh, in particular, the, the nicotine replacement therapies. You probably didn't really think much of it. You probably just uh, acknowledge that, yeah, I'm aware of those, those different um, tools. I'm, I'm aware of those different therapies, and, and then you just kind of move past it. We don't tend to have the same type of, of preconceived notions or, or even misconceptions about something like smoking cessation, even though the mechanism, the intent of those, uh, the patches and the gums is similar to something like, uh, like naltrexone. It's similar to something like uh, buprenorphine. And yet there's a, a much different perspective on opioid replacement therapies uh, than there is related to nicotine replacement therapies. Uh, again, we'll get into that as we move forward in the session, but I, I wanted to bring this up simply to note that um, depending on the substance, depending on what somebody is using, depending on, on where they're using it, what community they live in, there may be a much different approach or a much different consideration for treatment simply based on, on that substance and what it may mean for a particular individual to be using that substance. Uh, the other side of this is just to, to note that when you can, make sure that you're having conversations about smoking because it is not, it's not a, a harmless activity. Uh, yes, it may be less risky than somebody who's injecting heroin multiple times per week, uh, but I still want to have a conversation about overall health and well-being related to smoking uh, with clients, especially I think younger clients. This tends to come up more frequently. Uh, we tend to, to take more of a, a preventative stance with younger individuals who mention that they're smoking. Let's start to talk about opioids. Uh, what are they? How do they work? What do we mean when we're talking about opioids? Uh, there are a few different opioids that we would consider as we have this conversation. Um, we would be thinking about uh, the opioids that are synthesized into things like heroin. And so you see that on the left side, opium, heroin, uh, tar heroin, that's noted on the left. And then you also have opioids that come in pill forms that are prescribed uh, from a pharmaceutical standpoint for the management of pain issues. Um, at this point in time, given what you're, you're encountering in your work, what do you hear the most about related to opioids? What substance tends to come up the most? 
what uh what do people talk about the most what are you hearing the most about in terms of opioids among your clients so you're hearing uh, a bit of pain meds um and what uh what kind of area are you working in are you working in mental health currently or are you in a more of a primary care setting. And so you're still encountering quite a few individuals who are prescribed pain meds um, or maybe obtaining them illegally. Uh, so the the pills are kind of the main concern that you're encountering at this point in time. Okay. It's interesting. That's, that's good to know. Um, any Anyone in particular that you're aware of? Or is it just a broad kind of swath of whatever people are prescribed or whatever they're able to get? broad okay all right good good to know uh again i think there are there are different trends that we tend to notice there are different trends that we tend to see uh pain meds are still very much a concern others what what type of opioids uh are you encountering in your work you're currently working with a client refusing any and all pain meds oh interesting yeah because he wants to get the strongest and no doctor is willing okay uh that's interesting so this individual is looking to get the strongest pain meds possible, and in the meantime, is refusing any other pain meds in favor of kind of holding out for for whatever the the most potent one might be. That's that's a really interesting situation. Um, that would indicate to me that either this individual is somewhat able to to manage their their opioid use for the time being, or they're using something supplemental. Uh, like heroin, or they're using something illicit uh, until they get that that uh, really potent substance. Yeah, because oftentimes if somebody is not managing in some way, or they're not supplementing in some way, they're going to take any pain med that they can get. Uh, they're gonna they're gonna get that from any direction that they can. Yeah, interesting. Thanks for contributing that. Uh, I I always find it interesting to to hear what you all are encountering because I you know I hear from uh, substance use providers. Uh, but they they tend to note uh, the substance use providers that I interact with. They're usually dealing more with um, with heroin issues. Um, among other individuals that I tend to get referrals from or, or consult with, uh, I tend to hear a little bit more about pill misuse. Even still, uh, it, there's a very distinct uh, separation, I think, socioeconomically that I tend to hear between individuals who are using heroin versus individuals who continue to use pills. Uh, but on a long enough kind of timeline, that separation doesn't really seem to be all that relevant. Um, individuals who tend to start with pills, maybe even the, the stronger stuff, uh, seem to end up using heroin, again, after a long enough period of time, because that's what's going to be available. Good. Um, <clears throat> So on the left side there, you have different examples of uh, opioids that are synthesized from the opium poppy. Uh, the opium poppy, the flowers, what you see in the middle there. We actually have really great poppy season here in Southern California, not the same kind of poppy flower. And so uh, could you smoke that? Probably, but I don't know that anything would happen. Uh, there are different varieties of that, that poppy flower. Uh, the opium poppy in particular is not, as far as I know, indigenous to or native to Southern California. Uh, you're hearing more cultivation in certain regions of the world like uh, Southeast Asia, but that's more historical. A lot of the opioid production now comes out of the Middle East, in, in particular um, Afghanistan. So you have the opium poppy there, really beautiful flower, synthesized into opium, heroin, uh, in different formulations on the left side. 
Opium is not quite as popular a, a substance uh, nowadays in favor of something like heroin. I think heroin is a little bit more potent. Uh, it's a little bit easier to synthesize as well. So you're going to get, uh, from a dealer standpoint, you're going to get a little bit more bang for your buck in terms of producing heroin. You see the two different types of heroin there. Uh, the top version, the powdered form, is going to be a little bit more potent than the tar form. The tar is a little bit more unrefined. Um, back in the day, back in the day, I'm talking like the 70s, uh, when there was that spike in heroin use, it was typically tar heroin that people were using. Tar heroin is a little bit cheaper. Again, it's less refined, and so you might have some issues with purity, um, but it is going to be a, a little bit more inexpensive than the powdered form. I say a little bit because at this point in time, a lot of the labs that are manufacturing the powdered form, which is sometimes called the, the China white form of heroin, uh, because it used to come from China, but it no longer does. It comes from Mexico predominantly now. Uh, some labs in South America, but a lot of the, the seizures that have been happening are indicating uh, labs from Mexico. The labs that are, are producing this powdered form of heroin are getting really good at creating this powdered form that's a little bit more potent. So it's potent enough to make it worthwhile. And it's also really cheap because of the, the manufacturing processes at this time. Uh, so you're seeing more and more of this powdered form of heroin. Uh, again, that's problematic because of the potential uh, potency. Um, it, it's, again, part of the evolution of, of uh, manufacturing of substances uh, among those organizations and networks with a, a distribution um, model, I guess we could say. So you're looking at some of the Mexican cartels and some of those, uh, the gang organizations that are capable of doing that. On the flip side of that, you have the pharmaceutical distribution, which uh, has its own kind of problematic history. If anybody's been following some of the the legal actions that have been taken against organizations like Purdue Pharmaceutical uh, related to OxyContin. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more later on. Um, but those organizations, those pharmaceutical companies are, are highly implicated in uh, part of the reason that we're having issues with opioids across the country uh, that we are now. There are different formulations of these medicines. Uh, I think most people are familiar with Vicodin, Hydrocodone, um, Percocet and then Dilaudid. These are different opioids that are typically prescribed for pain relief reasons. And as I said, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we move forward in the training. Uh, but again, note that uh, even in the chat, nobody mentioned that they're encountering clients that are saying, oh, you know, I'm, I'm using tar heroin or I'm, I'm trying to get this powdered form. Uh, a lot of it starts with these pills that are oftentimes legitimately prescribed or legitimately obtained via a physician um, prescription. So again, with the opioids, they're cultivated from the opium poppy. A flowered uh, opium pod is not going to be useful in terms of, of uh, deriving the psychoactive effects that we're talking about here. Uh, you see on the top right there, that's an opium poppy that's scored. And then that kind of sap that comes out is cultivated into the substances that we saw previously. There are two different kinds of opioid compounds that we want to consider, opiates and opioids. And you've probably heard these terms used interchangeably. I, that's typically fine if we're talking broadly about opioids, but keep in mind that 
opioids and opioids are slightly different. Opiates refer to substances that are derived from the opium poppy somewhat directly, whereas opioids are completely synthesized. So all opiates are opioids, but not all opioids are opiates if that helps you at all. Uh, morphine, codeine, opium, uh, heroin, uh, and then the hydrocodone, hydromorphone, uh, oxymorphone, what we saw in that last slide, some of those pills, are what we tend to think about as the opiates. Uh, those are the ones that come to mind most uh, frequently. And then buprenorphine is in that category as well. Opioids, those completely synthetic pain medications would be things like methadone, uh, fentanyl, tramadol, uh, those medications that are typically used for pain relief with significant medical intervention, things like major surgeries, that's when those medications are typically used. Uh, but we also see diversion of these medications. We see misuse of methadone. Even within methadone clinics, you hear about occurrences where individuals are not using that as recommended. Uh, you hear this with fentanyl. Fentanyl is getting a lot of attention currently. Uh, and then you hear a little bit of it with tramadol. Tramadol seems to be prescribed more frequently for pain relief. Uh, efforts because of its potency. Its potency is significantly less than, than morphine. I think it's, it's about uh, a tenth the potency of morphine. And so uh, because it has lower potency, the idea is that there might be slightly less uh, misuse potential. Again, it depends on the individual. It depends on how they're using their, their uh, medications appropriately or not. Um, but that's typically what you, if you're encountering somebody who's been prescribed tramadol, um, or if you encounter a lot of individuals who have been uh, prescribed tramadol due to, to pain issues, um, part of the justification is that it has potentially less risk of misuse because of the lower potency. Uh, but again, you hear of individuals becoming uh, physiologically dependent on opioids with that initial prescription of tramadol for pain relief. The routes of administration are the typical routes of administration that we would hear with other substances. Uh, it can be smoked, it can be drank, uh, it can be injected. Uh, the transdermal patches for something like fentanyl is what's typically used for pain relief in surgery situations. Um, it can be snorted. Uh, there are also situations in which individuals will rectally insert opioids uh, to get high that way. Uh, and then we'll talk about implantable formulations from the, the medical side, uh, actual subdermal implantations of different medications to assist with opioid use issues. We'll get to that in just a little bit. Questions about these different categories or any of the substances that have come up up to this point? We'll come back to fentanyl, we'll come back to heroin, and we'll talk a little bit more about the pills. Uh, let me know if you're encountering other opioids that, that we haven't discussed, uh, because it, it seems like, again, there's always some new pill that somebody is talking about, or there's always some new formulation that somebody's talking about, and we try to keep, keep as up-to-date on that as possible, but uh, that is a rapidly evolving uh, database of, of what people tend to to uh, use to get high, or potentially even the medicines that are being used. All right, what do opioids actually do? So 
We know that opioids uh, affect individuals in a particular way, that it helps them feel a little bit more numb. Uh, it has a pain relieving component to it. Uh, opioids actually act on not just the brain, but multiple places throughout one's nervous system. This includes the limbic system. Uh, so that area that's responsible for emotional regulation to some extent, feelings of pleasure, relaxation, and contentment. Um, many of you have heard me say this before, but I think one of the things to focus on, particularly from a co-occurring disorder standpoint, is you'll often talk with individuals who have a history of, of mental health impairments or, or mental health diagnoses, uh, potentially even a significant trauma history, that when they talk about using opioids for the first time, it's not just this feeling of relaxation. It's not just this feeling of things are pleasurable or I'm feeling a little bit of pleasure. It's almost this, this kind of holistic feeling of contentment uh, that everything is okay. And not just that everything is okay, but I am okay. And think about how profound an experience that must be for someone. Thinking about your clients who have significant trauma histories, thinking about your clients who have been dealing with uh, mood disorders for the better part of their lives. The idea that somebody could take a, a substance and get an almost immediate, almost kind of like existential experience of being okay, that is a really tough thing to argue against. We know about the ills of opioids. We know why it's, it's problematic and, and uh, not conducive to somebody's overall health to be using something like heroin. But that immediate experience of contentment, that creates a really persuasive argument to that individual to continue to use opioids uh, beyond kind of this, this neurochemical a reinforcement pattern that's going to be happening. So I think it's worth, if you're encountering somebody, again, from a co-occurring disorder standpoint, don't focus solely on discontinuation of use. Don't focus solely on lecturing someone about all the reasons they shouldn't be using substances, but try to incorporate in your discussion, your education around the neuro neurochemical processes of, of opioid use. Try to have a conversation about the person's perspective of, of what it does for them and tie that into this, this need, if you're thinking about kind of Maslow's hierarchy, this need for contentment, this need for security, this need for stability. Uh, I think it's worth diving into that piece from a mental health standpoint uh, and slowing down from just thinking about this as a, a behavioral um, intervention in order to truly understand why somebody's using and why they continue to use. Uh, opioids also act on the spinal cord as part of the, the kind of the nervous system. So um, the spinal cord receives sensations from the body before sending them to the brain. Um, the opioids will actually decrease feelings of pain even after serious injury. So it'll impact that, that communication process, thereby uh, reducing the, the experience of pain. And then the brainstem, which is responsible for all of those kind of automatic processes, things like breathing, things like heart rate that you don't have to focus on, that you do automatically. Uh, opioids will actually slow down respiratory processes. Um, so you get respiratory depression, which is one of the concerns with overdose, that if somebody takes too much of an opioid, they're going to experience slower and slower respiratory processes, which can eventually leave, lead to um slowing or stopped breathing. Uh, it stops coughing. And so back in the day, back in the early 1900s, you could actually get heroin over the counter as an opioid. 
over-the-counter at a pharmacy to stop coughing. Uh, not only was it sold for coughing cessation uh, to adults, it was also sold as a coughing cessation mechanism for your young children. Because what better way to get a good night's sleep if your child is experiencing coughing or respiratory issues than to give them a little bit of heroin? Uh, again, not a recommended intervention at this point in time, but it was something that was done uh, pharmaceutically a uh, hundred years ago or so. Uh, it also works on reducing feelings of pain. There are old pharmacy pamphlets that, that we have in some of our other trainings that actually note that uh, giving a, a baby uh, heroin, it was a particular medicine that was, a, uh, that was heroin, uh, would actually reduce um, things like colic or things like an upset stomach. Um, because one of the things that happens when you use an opioid is you become constipated. And so if your baby is having issues with their, their bowels, um, it slows that process down. Uh, one of the withdrawal effects of opioids, then of course, on the other side of that is uh, experiencing diarrhea, which we'll talk about in just a little bit when we get to the symptoms. Um, so you, you can see that there was in the past some recognition of, of medical application of opioids in a slightly different way than we tend to think about it now. Uh, part of the evolution of medicine. We recognize that opioids uh, bind to specific opioid receptors in the nucleus accumbens, uh, which then re relates to the release of dopamine. If you've attended any of our trainings uh, in the past, you've heard us talk about dopamine and the importance of dopamine in a substance use uh, disorder. Um, I'm not going to belabor that point. I'm going to talk about dopamine again, uh, but we're not going to watch the same videos. We're not going to talk about it in exactly the same way. Uh, but opioids do act on those opiate receptors in the, the brain to release dopamine. That's one of the things that happens in combination with the release of endogenous opioids. We can see areas of the brain that are affected uh, by opioids using cyclofoxy, which is a selective opioid antagonist. Uh, we can image this and note where that cyclofoxy is occupying opioid receptors in the brain. And it turns out that there are quite a few different places where opioid receptors are present. There is not just one type of opioid receptor. In fact, there are five main different kinds of opioid receptors that we tend to think about, each with slightly different functions. I think this particular study is useful, one, because it tells us just how many different regions of the brain are going to be impacted when somebody is using opioids. Uh, you're looking at high binding in the temporal lobe, in the thalamus, in the basal ganglia, which is part of that limbic system related to reward, and then the frontal cortex as well. I talk a lot about the frontal cortex when I'm talking about substance use treatment because uh, oftentimes when somebody comes into services, inhibition of the prefrontal cortex is a, a byproduct of ongoing substance use. What you see here, uh, the kind of yellow, orange, reddish areas, those are all the areas that uh, opioid receptors are activated uh, with the cyclofoxy bonding. Again, it tells me that a number of different brain regions are affected uh, by opioids. What it also tells me is that the mechanism by which heroin affects opioid receptors 
is not the same mechanism by which methadone affects those opioid receptors. Because there are so many different regions of the brain that contain these opioid receptors, and there are a number of different opioid receptors, uh, taking methadone, while it is an opioid agonist, is not exactly the same as doing heroin. Uh, we've heard in different focus groups, we've seen this in, in different literature, that we've heard prescribing physicians, we've heard judges, we've heard counselors say, well, why doesn't this person just continue to take heroin? If you're gonna give them methadone, they might as well just be on heroin. Well, no, from a physiological standpoint, those are two very different substances. And while they're in the same classification as an opioid agonist, they do very different things. Uh, the type of receptors that are activated with methadone use uh, still allow for certain types of cognitive functioning that you don't see with ongoing heroin use. Uh, and so there is an adaptive component that allows for medical viability in the use of an opioid agonist like methadone. Uh, questions about the brain, questions about the, the um, use of opioids and the impact on the brain. What questions do you have about either this slide or opioids in the brain at this point? All right, good. Uh, let's talk about fentanyl. Uh, if anybody has encountered fentanyl in treatment, let me know. Again, it, it seems like every once in a while there's this huge spike of people experiencing fentanyl issues, uh, and then it kind of goes away for a little bit. Fentanyl, if you're not familiar with it, is a completely synthetic man-made opioid. It's about 100 times more potent than morphine, uh, which makes it about 50 times more potent than heroin. Uh, heroin being about twice as potent as morphine. Fentanyl is typically used, again, in uh, different surgical procedures, in different medical procedures. Uh, it is prescribed oftentimes in the form of transdermal patches that somebody will apply uh, if they're looking at managing pain meds. Um, this is slightly anecdotal, uh, but I, I've actually had fentanyl in the past for a surgical reason. This was not recreationally. Um, and... I, I can 100% understand why somebody would seek out something like fentanyl. Uh, it is an immediate reaction of, of calm and just feeling like everything around you is soft and fluffy. Uh, and, and so that experience is significantly more pronounced than heroin. It's significantly pronounced the, more pronounced than morphine. The problem with this is because it is so much more potent, the dose that's required to experience overdose is much smaller than something like heroin or morphine. Uh, what we're seeing now is not necessarily that individuals are using fentanyl that has been stolen from pharmacies or stolen from uh, medical facilities, but rather that fentanyl is being illegally manufactured and it's starting to be mixed in with other substances, things like heroin, or cocaine. Uh, the reason that fentanyl got a lot of national attention, I think this was maybe two, two and a half years ago, uh, there was a number of stories that were coming out of the Midwest. I heard about it from Ohio, uh, in which individuals were buying cocaine and they were overdosing once they were using cocaine. 
they found after the fact that that cocaine was mixed with fentanyl. And these were individuals who didn't typically use opioids. Uh, and so the dose of fentanyl that was mixed in with the cocaine was sufficient to cause overdose and in a number of situations, death uh, as well. We've heard surveys conducted in LA uh, in which individuals willingly allowed their, their heroin products to be tested for fentanyl. Uh, and I think in one survey in Hollywood, about 40% of the heroin that was tested came back positive for fentanyl. Um, 70, upwards of 75% of the people who had their heroin tested noted that they were unaware that, that it was possible that fentanyl could have been laced with their, their heroin. Uh, so the issue that we're encountering here is not just the increasing tolerance to opioid products, but that there are some individuals who aren't even aware that they're getting fentanyl mixed in with their product. You'll often hear from dealers that this is a particular selling point, that if somebody overdoses on a product that contains fentanyl, suddenly that dealer's product is much uh, is in much higher demand than others. Uh, that can then be distilled. It can be cut into a less potent uh, distributed doses and sold at a higher rate. So uh, there's a, a bit of a challenge that's occurring in which um, dealers may be Incorporating this into their products, uh, there may be also the challenge of individuals seeking this out because they've heard uh, of the potency of fentanyl. It does not take a lot. Two milligrams of fentanyl is a potentially lethal dose. Uh, so that's uh, not a ton of fentanyl to produce a, a really significant reaction. Uh, you can see it there compared to the size of a penny. This also makes it really difficult to, to potentially track fentanyl. Um, we have done some work with the Department of Corrections somewhat recently before the pandemic uh, in which we had heard from corrections officers on different blocks in different prisons of um, becoming intoxicated or becoming high because they encountered this powder in somebody's cell. They didn't know what it was. They inadvertently got it on their skin. They inadvertently inhaled it. Paramedics had to be called. They had to be dosed with Narcan uh, in order to prevent overdose. Uh, I'm also hearing a lot, or I was hearing a lot prior to uh, the, the shutdown of, of services that we've experienced recently with, with COVID. Uh, I was hearing in the prison systems that what individuals were doing uh, was to distill this fentanyl into a spray form, spray it on letters that were then mailed to inmates, uh, and then inmates were using those letters to get high uh, because it didn't take a lot of fentanyl to produce a, a significant opioid reaction. How else is methadone different than heroin? Uh, yeah, so the main mechanism is that it, the, uh, the manufacturing is controlled. So you kind of know what you're getting. With heroin, you don't necessarily know what you're getting. Uh, that means that the potency can be controlled. That means that there's a specific range for medicinal purposes that is, is manufactured when methadone is being used. Um, we'll talk about this in a later slide, but it's a good question to ask now. With heroin, you have to redose really frequently. A lot of these opioids have a very, very short half-life, uh, meaning they're going to be processed by the body and they're going to be... Um, processed out fairly quickly. Uh, most individuals who are using heroin or, or some of the, the prescription opioids that we talked about are redosing as frequently as every four hours throughout the day in order to maintain their high. With methadone, 
you don't have this up and down of being uh, intoxicated and then experiencing withdrawal and then using again to not experience the withdrawal and then uh, coming down from that high. It's a much smoother yield of the opioid in, in the body neurochemically. And so you're not getting these huge spikes where the person feels like they're high and then they feel like they're withdrawing because when they feel like they're withdrawing, the, obviously the course of action to, to navigate that is going to be to use more. Uh, so it's a much smoother curve in terms of uh, the, the experience of um, having that additional dose of an opioid from methadone. Those are kind of the main reasons that they're different. different. But again, we go back to the actual impact on different receptor sites. Uh, methadone is not going to activate the exact same opioid receptor sites that heroin does. And what we see with methadone, as somebody stabilizes on methadone, they don't have these intense cravings throughout the day. They don't have these intense spikes. Uh, they also retain typical or baseline cognitive and motor functioning. With heroin, because it's so up and down, somebody is never really going to even out in terms of their functioning. So they're either going to be intoxicated or they're going to be withdrawing, withdrawing from heroin at, at a, any given time, meaning their emotional functioning, their cognitive functioning, their physical functioning is going to be impacted in some way. With methadone, once somebody finds that appropriate dose and they're stabilized on that dose, their motor functioning shows no significant impairment. They could go out, they could drive a car, they could it's not recommended. They could operate heavy machinery because there is no motor functioning impairment. Cognitive functioning is not impaired. Uh, that an individual functioning is consistent, functions consistent with their baseline level of functioning. They can do math. They can respond to prompts uh, because the receptors that are activated with this smoother yield of methadone um, don't result in those same type of, of impairments. You tend not to really see that in treatment, I'm guessing, you tend not to treat, see that in treatment usually. Um, oftentimes what we tend to see, and, and I know what I've seen in my experience is people at the beginning of, of medication in, in induction. And so you know this with, with uh, psychotropic medications, it takes time to find the right dose. And as you're finding that right dose, you might get some of the side effects that are unintended. So people will be a little bit uh, more lethargic. They might nod off. They might fall asleep in your session. Uh, that's part of that process to find the right dose. Uh, it's often identified as a criticism of methadone that you're going to have people who are constantly sleepy early on, potentially, but uh, a, a good physician should be able to adjust the dose appropriately so that the individual doesn't feel a significant amount of discomfort and they're also not nodding off in your group every single time. But it does take a little bit of time. You all know that with, with uh, antidepressants. You know that with the other uh, antipsychotic medications that individuals are prescribed. Really, really good question. Yeah. The other issue that we're encountering, carfentanil. Uh, if you've heard of carfentanil, you can raise your hand in the chat uh, I, I'm, or in the participant list. I'm always really encouraged that not a lot of people have heard of carfentanil because carfentanil is, this is gnarly. You're talking about fentanyl being... 50 to 100 times more potent than something like heroin or morphine, carfentanil is going to be on the order of 10,000 times more potent than morphine, which is an absurd uh, increase in potency. And you can see it here. The amount of a lethal dose of heroin compared to fentanyl 
compared to carfentanil. So we talked about uh, the lethal dose of heroin is somewhere in the 20 to 30 milligram range. Generally speaking, it depends on the individual. Fentanyl is going to be in the range of about two milligrams, and we saw that compared to a penny. Carfentanil, it looks like there's a couple small pieces of, um, this is artificial sweetener used for illustration purposes. You see just a few dots of that in that jar. There isn't a ton known about carfentanil at this point in time in terms of, of how people are using it or how they're getting it. Um, if you do a lit review of carfentanil, um, a lot of what you're getting is the appropriate dose to sedate a moose or to sedate a bear because that's what carfentanil is used for. It is a large animal sedative uh, that's often used in, in like uh, wilderness park situations. Uh, and yet people are getting their hands on this and it's being incorporated into heroin. It's being incorporated into other products uh, particularly scary from my, uh, from, uh, in my opinion, because the number of people who are overdosing as a result of not knowing that fentanyl is in whatever they're using. If you throw car fentanyl into that, I, I can't imagine um, that the typical treatments for overdose would, would be useful. <laughs> um, so hopefully you're not encountering that. It's, it's worth knowing about. Uh, there are other synthetics that are out there as well. Sufentanil is one that's, getting a lot of attention. Um, there's another, and that's about, uh, I think it's about five to 10 times more potent than fentanyl. Uh, again, typically used in surgeries. And then there's another fentanyl byproduct that's a little less potent that we're seeing more and more of across the country. Um, let me know if you've heard about this too. This is really recent data. Uh, isotonotazine or ISO is a synthetic opioid that has been uh, emerging on the illicit market globally in 2019. Uh, it's estimated to be about 500 times more potent than morphine. So it puts it right in the middle between kind of fentanyl and carfentanil. Uh, this got a lot of attention in Ohio, Illinois, and Indiana. I think there's been legislation that's been proposed uh, in uh, the, the Senate to try to uh, curb the the use of ISO. Um, I don't know where that's at at this point in time, but emerging, it's an emerging drug, which means that it, it won't show up on any standardized drug test, which is problematic from a tracking standpoint. It's problematic from a research standpoint. That's going to be beneficial for somebody who's on probation, for example, if they're getting regular drug tests, if they're being screened regularly. Uh, if nobody is screening for ISO because it's so new, well, you can continue to use that and not violate your parole or your probation. Uh, again, particularly problematic because of its potency. And this simply continues the trend of new synthetic opioids that are emerging. Again, I, I can't keep track of every derivative of fentanyl that, that seems to pop up, um, but it is, it is constant that we're hearing new synthetics pop up. We're seeing it uh, occur at different points in the country. Uh, so kind of keep your ears open. Uh, ask your clients about what they're hearing. They are often more clued in to some of these trends than we might be by the time it shows up in a, a research study. Uh, really quickly, the acute effects of opioids. You get pupil constriction, slurred speech, impaired attention and memory. Uh, you talk about constipation, nausea, confusion, delirium, uh, seizures are possible as well. And then euphoria and sedation are kind of the most frequently reported effects, along with pain relief uh, that people tend to report. Those are kind of the desired effects, that, that immediate rush or that feeling of euphoria, uh, and then the ongoing pain relief. 
you'll get a little bit of drowsiness or lethargy, the respiratory depression that we talked about related to the, the impact on the brainstem. And then there's a histamine release. Uh, so people will often, you might see people like feel like they're itchy or they might scratch their skin a little bit. Uh, that is due to kind of a histamine flush uh, that people sometimes experience with opioid use. The long-term effects of opioids. The long-term effects of opioids themselves, from a medical standpoint, are minimal. They're, they aren't completely non-existent, but somebody can take an opioid medication for a long period of time without significant ongoing physical health impairments. The main issue that we tend to see is related to either inadvertent overdose or associated risks due to injection, things like collapsed veins, things like uh, transmission of HIV or, or hepatitis, um, infection of the heart lining and valves as a result of, of adulterants added to different substances, uh, and the certain pulmonary complications that may come up with smoking. And so now let's look at kind of what happens during opioid withdrawal. And opioid withdrawal is particularly severe in a way that, that causes people to go back to using. It, it is particularly unmanageable and the draw, the allure of, of using an opioid to manage the withdrawal symptoms is part of the reason that people have such a difficult time discontinuing opioid use. Um, it is not absent any other co-occurring medical conditions or any underlying conditions. It is not, it does not carry the same kind of lethal, potential for lethality that something like alcohol use or alcohol uh, withdrawal does, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. But it is by no means going to be comfortable for an individual to experience withdrawal symptoms. One of the uh, processes that occurs that people will often talk about is it's not even necessarily the full-blown withdrawal symptoms that they experience, but the anxiety of experiencing any withdrawal as it starts to come on, that induces kind of that next round of use or that next uh, occurrence of use. So uh, people will eventually be in a pattern of use where they're simply staving off the withdrawal symptoms rather than getting any sort of high from uh, what they're using. Uh, Opioids will produce similar withdrawal symptoms when they're stopped abruptly. And so we talked about the, the way in which the type of opioid that somebody is using, the amount that they use, how long they've been using it produces different effects. Uh, but generally speaking, the cluster of withdrawal symptoms are similar. You're going to see similar withdrawal symptoms if somebody discontinues heroin. Uh, you're going to see similar withdrawal symptoms if somebody discontinues methadone. The timing of the withdrawal symptoms depends on the opioid. With longer acting opioids, the symptoms are typically going to begin a little bit later and they're gonna last a little bit longer. So again, with your short acting opioids, these are things like heroin and oxycodone, you're getting your, your peak onset or your peak symptoms of withdrawal uh, three to four days following discontinuation. The onset of that is going to start within six to 12 hours. So pretty soon after discontinuation of use. Uh, and then the duration of the withdrawal is typically about, about five days. Compared to the time for a longer acting opioid, something like methadone, 36 to 48 hours for the onset, about 72 hours for the peak of the symptoms, and then up to three weeks for the duration of the withdrawal, which is a really long time to experience those symptoms if somebody is experiencing uh, that kind of discomfort for that period of time. 
Withdrawals uh, are have been described as the worst flu you've ever had, multiplied by about 100. Similar symptoms to having a flu, and you think about the the worst flu you've ever had. I, I I know the worst flu I've ever had. I felt like I couldn't even get out of bed. I couldn't do anything. Multiply that by about a hundred, and and that's typically how people will describe opioid withdrawal. You might see changes in mood, particularly dysphoric mood. Um, the main symptoms similar to flu: nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Uh, you'll get some sweating sometimes, tearing or runny nose, dilated pupils, uh, muscle aches, goosebumps. Uh, sweating, uh, and then some ongoing yawning, constant yawning, fever, and then insomnia as well. When we talk about the scope of opioid use and overdose issues, it brings us back to the consideration of prescription medications. This is partly to contextualize what's been going on, uh, generally speaking, uh, leading up to the opioid epidemic in this country. I, I often like to talk about, this is a bit of an older story now, but it kind of sets the stage for how long this has been going on and what the impact is. Uh, there was a story, and it got, it got a lot of play on like NPR a few years ago. I think this was probably in like 2017, maybe. Uh, there was a small county in Indiana that was being focused on related to the beginnings of the opioid epidemic because of issues that they were having uh, specifically related to, to HIV. Um, this was a small county that typically had, I think, about five new cases of HIV per year, if that. Uh, between January and April of, of the year that they were focused on, they had 140 new cases of HIV, uh, which is a bit in excess of what they would typically expect in a given year. The reason that there were so many additional HIV cases, if it's not clear, was as a result of needle sharing due to uh, prescription opioid misuse. And so people were not using heroin, they were using oxymorphone uh, or Opana, which is the brand name of that. Uh, they were obtaining this illegally, they were stealing it from pharmacies, and then there was a lot of needle sharing that was happening. Uh, <clears throat> I'm gonna come back to that example in just a little bit, but it, it, I think it highlights the way in which, I don't know that broadly speaking across the country that too many people were focused on the opioid issue per se. It kind of came up because there were these secondary medical consequences that were occurring as a result of these substance use issues. What you see here is, are graphs that reflect the trajectory, the course, the history of the opioid epidemic for the last 20 years or so. This all was started initially in the late 90s, early 2000s with the proliferation of um, opioid dispensing for viable medical reasons, which we'll get into in a second. With the proliferation of opioid pain medications, there was obviously a proliferation of people dependent on opioid pain medications. Uh, this led to certain uh, enterprising individuals creating things like pill mills, where either doctor shopping happened and doctor shopping happened and pills were stockpiled and then sold on the street, or they were uh, imported in at, in large quantities and then sold on the street for um, profit. That's a little bit of what you see here. So you see the increase in uh, prescribing 
over that period of time from 1998 to about 2012 on these graphs. Uh, if you look at the prescription opioid overdose deaths, those have also steadily increased with a little bit of a plateau in 2011 to 2013. Um, if you look at the rates among males versus females, you're seeing that more males are experiencing that opioid overdose death during this period of time as well. So we have this increase in overprescribing of pain medications. You have an influx of uh, illicit pain medications that are being sold on the street. There's a recognition of this midway through the 2000s that something needs to be done to curb the overprescribing, to curb the influx of the pills that are, are flooding the streets. Uh, so the FDA, the DEA took specific action. There were changes in formulations to medications to make them less susceptible to uh, misuse. There were changes in tracking for uh, prescriptions that were made, uh, and there was a greater focus on opioid pain medications uh, by the DEA. What you saw at this point then was a slight plateauing, you see it here, a slight plateauing of the overprescribing. When that happened, it wasn't that the problem went away. Once the prescription medications were no longer available to individuals, they didn't suddenly say, well, I guess, I guess I don't have an opioid need anymore. I guess my brain and my body will function perfectly fine without additional opioids to act on those receptors. That's not what happened. People turned to whatever was available, and what was available was heroin. So what you see with this plateau is a concurrent huge spike in heroin overdose deaths uh, because people were no longer able to obtain the pills or the, the, the medicines via legal or viable routes. Uh, there weren't as many illicit um, pain medications available on the street, uh, but heroin was still available and heroin was a little bit cheaper. So you see this, this significant spike in heroin overdose about the time that a lot of those actions were put into place to curb the overprescribing in the pill mills. I mentioned that there were additional steps that were taken. One of the steps that was taken uh, was introducing abuse deterrent formulations or ADFs. ADFs were requirements from the federal government placed on manufacturers to produce medications that had lower abuse potential. For Opana or oxymorphone, the way that this happened, uh, the abuse deterrent formulation made it harder to crush the pill to, um, and then to inject it. Uh, that didn't deter people from continuing to use it. It actually didn't deter people from continuing to inject it. They actually found in that county in Indiana that I mentioned before, they found that people were just using larger gauge needles to inject, which you can imagine is going to be problematic for a number of reasons, uh, depending on what you're injecting, depending on how uh, soluble that, that substance is, to, to be mixed with a liquid and then be injected, uh, the potential tissue damage along with the uh, potential for infection from needle sharing, to say nothing of the substance use issue itself. Uh, the abuse deterrent formulation did help to curb OxyContin misuse, but again, what you saw was a replacement of heroin use during that period of time. Um, it helped in a particular way. But people are, are, if they are seeking out a substance, will find a way to obtain and use that substance. Uh, people get really creative around how they use. People get really creative around what they use. Uh, unfortunately, that creativity sometimes has a, a negative health consequence associated with it. Uh, questions about the kind of the opioid epidemic and the, the recent history of that. 
LA Times has a great series on Purdue Pharmaceutical. I think this was published a couple of years back, but they've, they've updated it regularly as new information has come up. Uh, if you're looking to understand the, the kind of pharmaceutical aspect of this, the, the more kind of capitalist side of this discussion, I would look into that, that series of articles. Um, they, they chronicle individuals who were like prescribed 40 milligrams of a pain medication for a bike accident. And then within a month, we're taking like 400 milligrams. Uh, so there's personal stories, but there's also the context of um, broader conceptualizations than we would consider in treatment potentially for why we're at the point that we're at right now. The number of injury deaths uh, due to drug poisoning has steadily increased. Uh, and if you look at the rates here between drug poisoning, suicide, homicide, firearms, and motor vehicle crashes, uh, substance use or drug poisoning continues to increase. Uh, in 2017, the rate would be higher than this graph even allows. What we see is we see trends increasing uh, national drug overdose deaths involving psychostimulants like methamphetamine uh, by opioid involvement. So this is looking at psychostimulant overdose deaths with or without any opioid present. And what you see is that those rates are continuing to go up um, across the board. And I, I've mentioned this in other trainings that the main concern prior to discontinuation of typical daily activities as a result of COVID was that synthetics were trending upward largely across the board in this country. I don't think that's changing anytime soon. I don't think that is going to go away anytime soon. It is going to continue to be a, a major concern uh, from a, a behavioral health standpoint, but also from an overdose and death standpoint. See something similar with cocaine. Uh, so this is overdose death involving cocaine by uh, opioid involvement. And so while there was a little bit of a dip in cocaine overdose in the 2010s, it has since increased substantially. And the, the concern here is that cocaine overdose without any opioid present has remained somewhat stable. It's cocaine overdose with synthetic uh, opioids or any opioid that has, has really risen within the last few years. 91 Americans die every day from opioid overdose. That includes both prescription opioids and heroin. Uh, we've seen three waves in terms of opioid overdose death. Initially, it was that prescription opioid overdose death, which was consistent with the increase in overprescribing. Uh, in about 2010, you saw the rise in heroin overdose deaths consistent with efforts to curb overprescribing of prescription opioids. Uh, wave three has seen the, the market flooded with more synthetic opioids as people uh, crave more and more potent uh, opioid substances. And at this point in time, synthetic opioid overdose deaths are far outpacing any of the other types of opioids that we might focus on. Heroin is actually plateauing. It's leveling off in a pretty substantial way. Synthetic opioids show no sign of, of slowing down. And I think that kind of is reflected in what you all mentioned. Nobody really talked about heroin when they talked about what's coming up in their, in their jobs. Most of you mentioned pills, uh, something like tramadol potentially or fentanyl uh, with a little bit more potency. It's always important to think it, about California as, in terms of a microcosm. We have some unique challenges and we are a really large state with a really large population. Uh, if we look at trends related to opioid overdose in California, some uh, pretty distinct patterns jump out. Uh, there are certain areas of the state 
that are more hard hit by opioid issues. Typically what you're seeing are more rural counties that are going to be more impacted by, uh, by opioid issues. If we look at the breakdown by counties, uh, the overall rate for California is in the middle there per 1,000 residents or 100,000 residents. LA County is uh, towards the bottom, which is an indicator that uh, not as bad as some of the other counties, but still worth focusing on. And, and um, we know that LA County is, is broad and diverse. It is a very, very large county. And depending on where you go in the county, you encounter different types of substance use issues coming up. Uh, again, this indicates that uh, the more rural counties tend to be more harder hit by some of the opioid use issues. If we take a look at this graph, and we compare it to the number of counties with licensed narcotic treatment programs as of April 2016, you see a pretty consistent pattern show up that the counties that are hard hit by opioid overdose don't have programs in place that support opioid treatment, uh, which paints a very clear conclusion to me that we need to have opioid treatment programs. We have, not, have to have narcotic treatment programs available for individuals to try to reduce uh, the potential risk of overdose and, and some of those negative consequences that can result. Just a little bit about opioids in historical context, and I think this connects nicely with uh, Myra's uh, article that you sent, that um, when we look at the historical context of prescribing of medications, one common assumption is that African Americans are protected from the opioid crisis because of lower access to prescription to opioid painkillers. This was an assumption that was generalized. I remember um, mid 2010s, like 2015, 2016, I was hearing in LA County that it was likely that um, black and African-American individuals and uh, Latino, Latino, Hispanic individuals were less likely to experience issues related to the opioid crisis because of community protective factors. Uh, that there were aspects of the community that reduced the potential for the development of an opioid use disorder. Uh, in fact, what we're starting to understand is that there's less access to prescription opioid painkillers. Not that there's lower access, but there's less access. Generally speaking, this is true when we look at healthcare uh, for individuals of, of color or communities of color, that uh, these are individuals who are disproportionately impacted by limited availability of services and uh, limited availability of access to those services. Um, part of this is due to resource allocation. Part of this is due to misperceptions and biases within the healthcare system itself that result in undervaluing or devaluing uh, individuals' reports of pain. Um, the opioid epidemic has also been largely overlooked by the media. Um, a lot of the focus has been on white communities, particularly white communities in the Midwest. Uh, the marginalization of these communities is consistent with longstanding patterns of framing addiction among people of color as a shortcoming of those individuals that has to be addressed by militarization of policing and criminal justice system involvement rather than treatment or uh, rehabilitation as we tend to think about it in its uh, most relevant context. So again, this has a long and storied history. You have to look no further than um, cannabis 
to understand the way that, that substances have often been used as a socio-political tool to marginalize different communities. Um, marijuana was legally sold at the turn of the century. Uh, and yet during the uh, Mexican Civil War, when there was an influx of migrants uh, that could not be accommodated, according to the individuals in, who were making the laws and the policies at that time, uh, marijuana was outlawed as a means of criminalizing the individuals who could potentially be uh, coming over the border during that civil war. Um, that has persisted to this day in terms of the legal criminalization of marijuana. Um, and, and again, you see the way in which it marginalizes certain communities or certain individuals. We see with prescribing of opioids that uh, black and African-American individuals are, are a third less, almost a third less than uh, white patients to be prescribed opioid pain medications in emergency departments. In one particular study, African-Americans had higher self-reported pain scores compared to whites, indicating that they're experiencing more pain compared to, to uh, their, their counterparts. But some healthcare professionals believed that their pain levels were actually lower or that these individuals were over-inflating their reports of pain as a result of being drug-seeking. Uh, there was a study that was done, well, it was a survey, it wasn't a study that was done uh, a couple of years ago that asked medical students to identify pain symptoms and attribute those pain symptoms based on individual patients. And there was some pretty shocking results from that particular survey. Uh, a number of those medical students actually reported believing that there were physiological differences due to race that resulted in black individuals having uh, less of an experience of pain due to differences in nerve endings and, and um, physiological differences, which then would translate to uh, differences in prescribing and, and uh, treatment. So again, when we talk about this idea of stigma, it's not just stigma around substances. It's not just stigma around what it means to be an addict, whatever that means to people. Uh, that is not mutually exclusive from considerations of, of uh, systemic issues related to race. It's not uh, mutually exclusive from disproportional impacts on certain communities of color or different uh, socioeconomic uh, communities across the country. And so it's a, it's a much broader conversation than we can get into in any depth today. Um, but again, I appreciate that Myra posted that article because it does go into that a little bit, a little bit more of the history uh, of using substances to, to criminalize certain groups uh, and the way in which that perpetuates stigma even today. If we take a look at the historical context of identifying pain more broadly, in the 1990s, OxyContin was approved by the FDA as minimally, minimally addictive as a pain reliever. Uh, OxyContin, the, the makers of OxyContin, Purdue Pharmaceutical, uh, had a somewhat breakthrough medication that rather than having to dose multiple times per day, their, their formulation for OxyContin meant that you would only have to dose twice a day, uh, that you could get a full day's worth of pain relief from one pill. And that was a major selling point for OxyContin. Uh, to the extent that they were they were uh, kind of whining and dining different physicians and different uh, medical centers to uh, 
to promote this idea that you wouldn't have to dose this frequently uh, because you didn't have to dose this frequently. It had lower abuse or misuse potential. They began to find, and this is noted in that LA times article that I, I mentioned, they found upon review that um, over 80% of the individuals that were using Oxycontin either reported limited pain relief for the time that it was designated to provide pain relief or supplemental pain relief medication added into the Oxycontin to be able to get that time period. But Oxycontin, was, the makers of Oxycontin were reporting it as a full day's worth of pain relief. This is problematic because if you're told that you're going to get 12 hours worth of relief and you're given a dose for 12 hours uh, or to produce 12 hours worth of relief from pain symptoms and you start to feel bad at about six hours in or eight hours in, you're probably not going to wait the full 12 hours before you dose again. The more frequently you dose, the more likely you are to build tolerance. Uh, tolerance to opioids builds incredibly quickly, uh, which then means the person is going to be seeking out additional uh, prescriptions, uh, refills in order to continue to dose at the level that they feel like they require. In 2001, the Joint Commission made pain the fifth vital sign among physicians, encouraging more assertive assessment and identification of pain. More identification of pain meant we needed some mechanism to be able to treat the chronic pain that exists in a lot of, of Americans, uh, which meant that there was now a demand for pain relieving medicines. Opioid painkiller medications skyrocketed over the next 12 years, uh, and we saw that opioid prescriptions disproportionately went to white patients uh, due to access to care, as well as insurance and funding availabilities. <clears throat> it was highly known that it was more addictive than other drugs. Yeah, but it was approved anyway, right? Uh, more money, structural racism. Uh, I, I think you have to follow the money. I think you have to follow the money in this situation. Uh, again, I'm not going to turn this into a conversation about business practices and capitalism, but uh, there, it's well documented that there were uh, practices embedded in what Purdue Pharmaceutical and other companies did that that discounted the science. Uh, a lot of the there was one specific scientific study, scientific I put that in quotes, that indicated that OxyContin had reduced um, abuse potential. That study came out of Purdue Pharmaceutical itself, uh, and yet they were promoting that as as evidence of the viability of this particular medication. Uh, when we talk about that kind of capitalist structure and following the money, I I don't know that we can confidently say that it is it is uh, separated from structural racism. That we know that that's embedded in in multiple different levels, and so uh, the extent to which that the extent to which we can describe that today, I think, is is limited. But keep that in mind. Uh, and I think when we again, when we talk about stigma, it's worth having that that broad conceptualization in place. Um, <clears throat> if you if you really want to become incensed, uh, look at some of the practices for settling the lawsuits that pharmaceutical companies have engaged in recently. Uh, that's that's a whole different tangent. But it's again, if you're interested in staying up to date on kind of the the broader context of how we ended up where we are, um, those practices have not, there, there's no, there's no uh, kind of um, contrition on the part of pharmaceutical companies to, to pay back some of the, the impact uh, in terms of what we've seen up to this point. Uh, but keep your eyes on additional legislation because it does seem like there's, there's a little bit more bipartisan support for opioid, uh, focuses on opioid use issues. Um, 
I'm, I'm not going to get on a political soapbox and I'm not going to go down that road any further. But um, there is some legislation that, that continues to be pushed around um, at the federal level uh, or at the national level to, to um, address opioid use issues. Uh, so again, non-medical opioid misuse has increased in white communities. Uh, and rather than incarceration, uh, regular, regulators instituted things like prescription drug monitoring, voluntary take-back programs, uh, broader availability of naloxone, and then Good Samaritan laws to protect people. If somebody was experiencing overdose, you call 911, you're not going to get in trouble for the drug-related aspect of that. The person who's experiencing the overdose is going to be uh, a treated from a medical standpoint. The arrest rate for sale and possession of, of prescription drugs was 25% of that for heroin or co cocaine use. Uh, in 2002, the FDA approved uh, buprenorphine as a medical treatment for opioid use issues. By 2005, nearly uh, 95 or over 90% of patients on buprenorphine were white, college educated, employed, uh, and then dependent on prescription opioids specifically. Methadone patients, however, are typically more likely to be individual people of color without college education, often unemployed, uh, and heroin users. So you see a, a separation in the availability of certain medications, depending upon the group uh, that an individual might belong to. Buprenorphine was, uh, by and large, marketed to uh, white people, uh, demographically targeted to that uh, that particular segment featuring images of white people uh, in most of the, the advertising materials that were produced. We also see this if we look at how buprenorphine is paid uh, and the frequency with which individuals have access to it. So um, on the graph here on the left, you look at the changes in buprenorphine visits based on race and ethnicity. Uh, that line that spikes up is white individuals compared to black and other categories hasn't really changed from 2004 to 2012 or 2015. If we also look at it by payment type, the individuals who have access to buprenorphine are largely going to be individuals who can pay privately, individuals who are self-paying, and or individuals who are white. So there's a disproportionate distribution of a really viable medication to treat opioid use issues that's not getting to uh, certain communities where uh, people might benefit uh, from this medication. Heroin epidemic has highlighted uh, the way in which we respond to crimes accompanying addiction, and it depends a lot on how we care about the victims of crime and those in the grips of addiction. Uh, white heroin addicts get overdose treatment, rehabilitation, and reincorporation, uh, a system that will be there for them again and again and again. Black drug users, by and large, get jail cells and just say no, which we know is in no way, shape, or form an effective treatment for uh, any sort of substance use or an effective way of curbing any sort of substance use issue. Um, this was a, a survey study that was done in 2018 that looked at some of those different demographic trends within the historical context of the opioid epidemic. It's weird to say historical context, uh, given that it's only gone back 20 years, but that's a, a decent amount of time to be experiencing these, uh, these issues. Uh, all right, so let's explore a case. We're, we're going to go through this Andrea vignette, which you should have access to. Thank you, Victoria, for posting that in the chat. You can access the handout there. What we're going to do is we're going to separate, separate you into small groups. I think three groups is probably going to be good for the number of people on the session today. And I just want you to go through this vignette. And I want you to talk about how you would engage this person in a conversation about recovery. What interventions do you think are necessary to address her opioid use issues? 
And how would you bring up the role of medication-assisted treatment in assisting Andrea? So uh, Andrea is a 27-year-old Latina uh, who presented to treatment several years ago with an opioid use disorder severe. She had been using prescribed opiates for medical complications during a surgical procedure. Her pain and subsequent opioid use continued for a number of years as a result of abdominal adhesions. Prior to the surgery, Andrea had been living independently, working for a local tech startup after receiving her BA in business from a local university. During the surgery, Andrea's use of prescription opiates, uh, or since the surgery, uh, her use of opiates had escalated and she switched to heroin when her physician refused to refill her prescription for misusing, abusing the prescription. She was introduced to heroin by a quote unquote friend. Initially, she smoked the drug, but shortly thereafter, the same friend showed her how to inject. She then lost her job, her apartment, and ended up moving in with her mother and younger sister. She's been through a number of treatment episodes, including detoxification and, and extended residential stays. She was first brought into treatment by her sister and mother three years ago. Since that time, she's been through multiple detoxifications and residential stays only to end up back on heroin. During the most recent treatment episode, Andrea was inducted onto buprenorphine and entered IOP where she began to address the behavioral aspects of her use. Initially, she was attentive to her recovery, going to 12-step groups, relapse prevention groups, and she was working with a pain management specialist uh, focusing on Eastern and Western medical procedures. She continued to live with her mother uh, and her sister and had been working in retail, selling uh, women's clothing in a small boutique shop. After about three months, she felt that she could manage her recovery without the assistance of buprenorphine and began to self-taper and then abruptly discontinued the buprenorphine on her own. She became less attentive to recovery, missed a bunch of sessions, missed groups, and wasn't showing up to her medical appointments. Uh, she was complaining to her pain management doctor that things were getting worse and she needed something to get by. At the outpatient clinic, several urine drug screens returned from the lab were positive for multiple drugs, including heroin, codeine, and cannabis. Uh, initially, she denied using anything, but during one group, she admitted that she had gotten off of buprenorphine and was taking codeine for the purposes of managing her pain. After sharing her disappointment with herself and concern that she'll never be healthy again, Andrea admitted to smoking and then injecting heroin on a daily basis. What you would do, what else do you need to know about Andrea? How would you try to engage her? And what do you think she might need in terms of services? for treatment. Um, when in doubt, a lot of the research that we're seeing now indicates that one of the best ways of maintaining recovery is to build a sense of community. Uh, we'll talk about the medications that you can add in. CBT works great. All, motivational interviewing works great. But having a, a community, an appropriate community to facilitate recovery is invaluable. So I, I love that suggestion as well. Good. Good. Keep that in mind. Uh, I think that's a good kind of stepping off point for our next discussion. Uh, I'm going to go through opioid medications really quickly. And I'm going to go through these opioid medications just from kind of the physiological standpoint, because we've talked about conceptualizing what somebody might need. Let's take a look at what's available. And so there are three medications that we're going to focus on, methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone. To understand these, we want to understand that they each have a different effect that a full opioid agonist is going to interact with opioid receptors to the extent that the more of the agonist you have, the more you're gonna activate those receptors. 
there really is no cap on that beyond death. At some point, you act on those opioid receptors enough and you're going to get respiratory depression to the point that death is the outcome, right? That's what we think about when we think about a full agonist. The other end of this is an antagonist, naloxone or Narcan, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but that's kind of considered the antidote to an opioid overdose. The antagonist is going to occupy those opioid receptors so that somebody can't get high from something like heroin. In the middle there is the partial agonist or buprenorphine, the medication that Andrea was on. And buprenorphine is particularly useful for the treatment of opioid use issues because it has a natural ceiling, meaning that it will produce a slight opioid effect by acting on those opioid receptors, but it's not going to be a stackable effect where if somebody continues to use more and more buprenorphine, they get higher and higher and higher until they eventually uh, have respiratory failure and death. What happens is there's a natural ceiling that the person can't get past, uh, meaning that they can't overdose on buprenorphine. So you can see the medical application of it in that way. Remember what we talked about that uh, with typical opioids, things like heroin or other medications, you get this up and down spike uh, where somebody's going to feel euphoric and then they're going to feel normal. They're going to use again to feel euphoric. And over time, they start to use simply to feel normal so that they avoid the tolerance or the withdrawal aspect of the opioids. What the medications do is they kind of flatten out those spikes a little bit. So the person is not constantly going up and down or seesawing back between these different levels. The purpose of these medications is ultimately to control the symptoms of withdrawal and to suppress the craving for the opioid. It reduces the reinforcing component of the opioid so that the person doesn't get that positive experience in the same way, and they also are no longer experiencing the withdrawal effects. When you couple this with behavioral interventions, it becomes even more effective. So we have research information that these medications can be effective on their own. But we want to think about coupling these with good mental health treatment, good behavioral interventions to increase the likelihood of, uh, of uh, effectiveness. Ultimately, we're trying to reduce mortality to save lives. And that's what these medications have been shown to do. Uh, we want to reduce associated morbidity uh, by moving people away from things like needle sharing. You reduce the transmission of bloodborne viruses. Uh, you reduce the infectious compl complications that come along with intravenous drug use. They enhance retention and treatment, they improve general health and well-being, and they've been shown to reduce substance-related crime. So methadone is the first one that we're going to focus on. Methadone comes in a couple different forms. It comes in a tablet form or a liquid form, as you see here. The liquid form is typically uh, the preferred choice because with pill forms, you sometimes have to worry about people cheeking the tablet and then spitting it out once they're out of the clinic or wherever they might be and then selling that on the street because methadone is a full opioid agonist, meaning it's going to produce an opioid intoxicating effect. If you take too much, you can overdose. Uh, the goal with, the, with methadone, as we talked about, is not for somebody to take it so that they get high or experience the, the intoxicating effects where they're unable to function, but rather to produce enough of an opioid effect that they don't experience withdrawal and therefore aren't so uncomfortable that they feel like they need to, to go and, and pursue uh, an opioid solution.
This has been used to treat severe pain in really high doses. Uh, it's also used to treat opioid use issues. As we talked about, it suppresses the withdrawal symptoms, uh, and it typically does require daily dosing. You can get take-home doses, uh, but most of the time methadone is maintained at a daily dosing schedule at a federally licensed clinic. Uh, and so there's some prep work that you have to do, right? There, it's not just about uh, maintaining all the medications. It's not just about getting a job. You have to kind of help the person advocate for themselves. You have to, to maybe coach them a little bit on what to say. Uh, there's a little bit of that pre-work that we should be thinking about in treatment uh, before we send somebody out to, to do these kinds of activities that might be beneficial for recovery. Good. Uh, again, we talk about daily observed dosing. It's a full opioid agonist. And so with that, it, it, there's some potential misuse uh, that could occur. The dose is typically 20 to 40 milligrams for acute withdrawal. Uh, greater than 80 milligrams for ongoing craving and blockade. Uh, and then for pain, it's a little bit higher than that as well. The advantages of methadone are that it suppresses withdrawal and craving. It reduces participation in crime. It's been shown to reduce IV drug use, uh, the transmission of bloodborne viruses, and it has few long-term side effects. The disadvantages are that you're technically still maintained on a physiological opioid dependence, which means that withdrawal can occur if the individual discontinues or tapers the medication. Uh, there's a process to become approved to dispense uh, methadone, and you have to be federally licensed as an OTP. There's also considerations uh, in terms of like nimbyism uh, to market oneself or establish oneself as a methadone maintenance therapy program. Uh, there is the daily time commitment to go in, get the dose, and then potentially meet with a counselor. Uh, and you have to have really careful monitoring for diversion or other any drug-drug interactions. Methadone has generally been identified to be safe. It has more than 40 years of research on its, on its efficacy. Uh, there's no evidence of disruption in cognitive or psychomotor performance, as we talked about. And there is no evidence of organ damage with chronic dosing. There is a consideration for potential irregularities in, in heart rhythms. Uh, the QT interval seems to be impacted in certain individuals uh, who may be using methadone. And so that's something that has to be monitored by a professional. Um, you'll also hear reports of things like uh, bone thinning that can occur with ongoing methadone use. Um, there is research that indicates that, but the jury is still out on, on kind of the, um, the factors that contribute to it. Buprenorphine does something slightly differently. So remember, it, it has that partial agonist effect in which you can't push through that ceiling uh, to experience overdose. Buprenorphine works in two main ways. The first of which is it prevents opioid withdrawal symptoms by binding tightly to those opioid receptors. Uh, it provides mild agonist effects. So you can experience a little bit of that high from buprenorphine, uh, but it's when it's used, as recommended, that's often not the case. The times that I hear about that, again, are in prison settings, uh, situations where an individual has uh, completely gone through opioid withdrawal. People will report obtaining these kinds of medications and having a slight intoxicating effect as a result of its use. It occupies those opioid receptors so that if illicit opioids are used, they can't bind to those occupied receptors and therefore have no intoxicating effect or no, uh, no desirable effect. Um, it provides opioid agonist effects up to a certain limit. 
that ceiling effect at higher doses means that the individual is unlikely to overdose on this particular substance. It also reduces the likelihood of um, effects from injection or illicit substance use. Typically, this is prescribed at a doctor's office, unlike methadone, uh, and allowed for take-home doses. It also has slightly less stigma than methadone. Um, there are a few different types of buprenorphine that we want to take a look at. Uh, the first of which is we'll look at Suboxone, which is the buprenorphine-naloxone combination. Naloxone is the antidote to an opioid overdose. And so if you've ever, um, Pulp Fiction, I think, is probably the most well-known movie that introduces uh, a naloxone. If somebody has experienced an excess amount of an opioid, you can dose them with naloxone and it will kick the opioid, it'll bind to those opioid receptors so that the individual no longer experiences the effects of the illicit opioid. Uh, it's a fairly immediate effect. Uh, and the combination of buprenorphine and naloxone means that there is limited opportunity for somebody to misuse the buprenorphine. That if somebody were to try to inject suboxone, the naloxone would block any of the opioid effect, the, the opioid antagonist effect. Um, if it passes through the GI tract, it's absorbed uh, as, as normal, and it has no effect on, on the individual or the medication. Uh, dosage typically starts at about 48 milligrams per day. It can go up to 16 to 24 milligrams for maintenance. Uh, typically, you're taking this as a sublingual under the tongue dose, but it comes in injectable and implantable forms as well. It can precipitate withdrawal in individuals who are opioid tolerant. So you typically have to have an individual who's in mild, moderate withdrawal before you initiate this particular medication. Because again, uh, it'll, it'll occupy those opioid receptors. And if the individual is tolerant, if they have opioids in their system, uh, it'll induce a precipitated withdrawal. Uh, there is monthly subcutaneous uh, buprenorphine depots that are, it's a sublocate, which is an implantable form. It's a once monthly form. Seven to 14 days of transmucosal buprenorphine is administered initially. Uh, and then the peak concentration of the buprenorphine is available within 24 hours after the injection. It typically lasts for about a month. Um, there are some situations in which people will report that it doesn't last an entire month. Uh, but again, that's an individual difference that should be monitored by a physician. People tend to report that the implantable form or the injectable form is um, preferable to the sublingual form. Uh, and then the positive criteria it's easier to manage because you don't have to travel as much. There's no focus on daily adherence. Uh, you, you don't have to have a, a daily medication or regular trips to the pharmacy, and it reduces the potential for accidental pediatric exposure, which you can imagine would be concerning with something like an opioid agonist or partial agonist. Uh, the sublocate has been shown to increase retention and treatment, similar to other kinds of injectable forms of medications. Makes sense. Somebody doesn't have to worry about taking the medication every single day, and so you reduce the potential for limited medication adherence, uh, and, and you see people showing up to treatment at a higher rate. 
So that's the injectable form. The implantable form, which is typically implanted in the arm, was approved in 2016. Uh, it's four small rods that are implanted subdermally uh, that release buprenorphine for six months. So again, even less time that you have to worry about trying to take those medications. So the naloxone is not in the buprenorphine specifically. Uh, the suboxone, that's right, Alexandra, is a combination of buprenorphine and naloxone. So buprenorphine is going to be a semi-synthetic opioid. The naloxone, which is kind of the antidote to overdose, is added in so that if you tried to misuse the buprenorphine, if you tried to inject it, which is not the recommended way of using it, um, it wouldn't work because of the naloxone. Good question. Very good. Uh, if you are working with pregnant women uh, or expectant mothers, the recommendation is to maintain individuals on opioid medications during the course of pregnancy because the potential risk uh, that's presented by going through withdrawal to the developing fetus and to the mother is significantly higher than maintaining the individual on an opioid medication. Um, and so, again, if you're working with pregnant mothers, there has been uh, research that indicates that while neonatal abstinence syndrome is a potential impact on development, with appropriate care and support, uh, there are no developmental differences between those babies and babies who were not born to um, opioid-dependent mothers. Again, that's, that's a pretty big caveat with adequate support uh, and resources, so we would want to make sure that we're considering the range of services that can be available for someone uh, if you are working with a pregnant woman who is dependent on opioids. I'm gonna go over naltrexone uh, because this generalizes to alcohol as well. So we're starting to talk a little bit about alcohol. Naltrexone is one of the main medications that are used in alcohol use issues. Uh, naltrexone is an opioid receptor antagonist and it blocks opioid receptors. So by doing so, it prevents the reward effect from opioids as well as from alcohol. Uh, it, it has to be, an individual has to be inducted after having gone through withdrawal. Otherwise, it will induce withdrawal symptoms by blocking those receptor sites. Uh, with the extended release version, which Alexandra mentioned, Vivitrol, this is a once monthly injection in the hip or the gluteus uh, to increase medication adherence. Once it's injected, can't be removed person doesn't have to worry about daily medications. It blocks both opioid and alcohol effects. Uh, so opioid, opioid pain meds will not be effective if they're taken while on naltrexone. Some examples of that medication there. Um, it works exactly like oral naltrexone. It cannot produce dependence. There is no abuse liability with this particular medication. Uh, and you're getting typically about 28 days, about four weeks from the injection, uh, equivalent to 28 doses of oral naltrexone during the same period of time. It requires full abstinence in order to induce the person three to six days for short-acting opioids, seven to 10 days for long-acting opioids. Typically, this is confirmed by um, a urine drug test or the naloxone challenge, which is providing somebody with uh, small doses of naloxone to see if they have uh, a, a reaction to it or a, a naltrexone tablet and then waiting to see if there's a reaction. Uh, again, you want to make sure that the individual is opioid free uh, from a physiological standpoint before inducing onto naltrexone. There are very few drug-drug interactions that have been noted for this particular medication.
Uh, the oral formulation has poor adherence and limited effectiveness. And so oftentimes uh, participants or physicians will defer to the injectable form of it. Now, naloxone is the other one that we haven't mentioned yet. Naloxone for opioid overdose re reverses the overdose effect. Naloxone has a stronger affinity for those opioid receptors and therefore will bind tightly to those receptors, essentially kicking the opioid out of position. Uh, what this does is it reverses the effect of respiratory depression, allowing the person to start breathing again and reversing the effect of overdose. This acts fairly quickly. It takes effect in two to five minutes. It is available via nasal spray or an auto injector that's injected into the thigh. Uh, when someone overdoses, what people are given typically is naloxone. So that's what first responders will give. I know that there are certain police departments that carry it. There are even certain providers, mental health providers that uh, are permitted to carry naloxone uh, or Narcan is what the, the brand name would be. Um, there is no misuse for naloxone. It cannot, you can't get high from naloxone. It has no effect if there are no opioids present. Uh, it does not increase substance use risk because you can't get addicted to it. It has no psychoactive effect. The thing to be cognizant of is that simply dosing someone and reversing the effect of overdose does not mean that person is in the clear. They still need to be monitored by a medical professional. And when you have something like fentanyl present, because it's so potent, there are certain situations that I've talked with individuals who have been dosed three or four times over the course of one stay in an emergency department because of the potency of the opioid that they took. Uh, so again, it's not like you dose somebody, they get up and they go on their way. Uh, there should still be some medical oversight. Um, oh, sublocate is in the abdomen. Okay, good. So I appreciate you weighing in and, and backing me up. We were both wrong in this regard. It's in the abdomen. Okay, so, uh, so you've got the uh, naltrexone is in the hip or the gluteus and then sublocate is in the abdomen uh, and uh yeah and then the the implantable form is in the arm narcan can be administered as a nasal spray there is also an auto injector uh in which you you can use this even if you don't have medical training. Uh, once you pull the top off of it, it walks you through with verbal instructions how to administer the dose. It contains one single dose of 0.4 milligrams of naloxone. Again, this is not a replacement for emergency medical treatment. Um, after use, an individual should seek medical treatment immediately. But as I said, there are more and more organizations and entities that are being trained to administer these medications. When we talk about alcohol, there are four neurotransmitters that are relevant. Endogenous opioids, which we've talked about, dopamine, which you all are aware of, and then glutamate and GABA. Those are the ones that we're going to focus on primarily. So when alcohol is used, endogenous opioids are released into the pleasure centers of the brain. Once that occurs, dopamine is then released. The dopamine makes the person feel good, and that reinforces the likelihood that they would uh, continue to drink to get that desired effect. So as somebody experiences this endogenous opioid release and then dopamine is produced, at the same time, GABA increases, which actually slows everything down, one of the effects of alcohol. Because of this overabundance of GABA, the brain will try to compensate, compensate by producing more receptors for glutamate. 
In doing so, the increased effect of glutamate actually energizes the system and restores balance. So what tends to happen during alcohol use is that GABA and glutamate are typically balanced. When somebody drinks, GABA is overproduced. As a compensatory mechanism to upregulate that imbalance, the brain will produce additional glutamate. Over time, as this process continues, a person will need to drink more and more alcohol to get that desired effect because the brain has upregulated and attenuated to the uh, increased presence of GABA. This is tolerance, the need to drink more and more to produce that level of intoxication. What happens when you take the alcohol away? Now there's an excess of glutamate, which leads to withdrawal. Withdrawal symptoms are mild tremors, anxiety, headache, uh, heart palpitations. Uh, severe withdrawal symptoms can include seizures. So seizures are the main focus of alcohol withdrawal um, that leads to potential lethal effects. Uh, this is the most lethal withdrawal process of the substances we've talked about because of that potential for seizures. The potential for seizures will spike at about six hours after uh, discontinuation of alcohol and falling blood alcohol levels. So what we recognize with the medications are that um, Vivitrol or naltrexone produces an effect similar to what we talked about with the opioids um, that reduces the positive effects of alcohol. It blocks the release of those opioids. So you don't get that cascade of pleasurable effects, uh, which in theory will lead to a reduction in desire to use. Uh, it's been found to be effective in blocking the euphoric effects of opioids, as well as reducing the number of days of heavy drinking. As we talked about, it blocks opioid receptor uh, sites, which diminishes the dopamine release. Naltrexone has been shown to reduce alcohol priming, the increased desire to drink, which may reduce the likelihood of heavy drinking. What we found is that participants did not maintain complete abstinence more frequently compared to placebo. They did have a greater reduction in the number of heavy drinking days than those that received the placebo. So people may continue drinking, but they're having fewer heavy days. Yeah, so the brain chemistry, one more time with naltrexone, is that uh, naltrexone is an opioid antagonist, meaning it's going to occupy those opioid receptor sites, which is going to prevent somebody from getting the pleasurable effects of a substance. It's going to block those sites so that somebody doesn't get the opioid to dopamine cascade with the administration of alcohol. If alcohol isn't pleasurable, there's not gonna be any need to, to really continue to use it. And that's what they're noticing with naltrexone. There are additional medications that we'll, we'll talk about really briefly. Um, Camprol or a camprosate is also used. Uh, it has a slightly different effect. It's used, uh, to maintain abstinence from alcohol by reducing post-acute withdrawal symptoms, right? The, uh, the mechanism here is that if you're not experiencing withdrawal, you're not gonna have another drink to stave off those, those uncomfortable effects. And then the third medication that's typically used is disulfiram. Disulfiram produces uh, 
a buildup of acetaldehyde dehydrogenase. And all we're going to say about acetaldehyde dehydrogenase is that it's one of the byproducts of metabolizing alcohol. When it builds up, it's actually slightly poisonous. And so what you get is you get a series of un unpleasant symptoms, throbbing in the head and neck, loss of consciousness, sweating, thirst, weakness in your, in your chest, uh, dizziness, heart palpitations. The reaction is so unpleasant. The idea is that if somebody were to experience this, they wouldn't continue to drink alcohol. So the way disulfiram works is that if somebody encounters alcohol, they're going to start to experience this disulfiram alcohol reaction. It's so sensitive that some people experience this reaction when they're on disulfiram, even if they encounter something like a perfume or a, a deodorant or a hand sanitizer that has alcohol in it. So you want to be very careful if this medication is used um, to make sure that there's medical oversight of that particular medication. Vivitrol or extended release naltrexone is the main medication that's used uh, for alcohol use. Uh, it is covered under Medi-Cal. And so I think that is kind of the go-to medication that a lot of providers will, will look at using. Again, the benefit is that you don't have to worry about daily dosing. It has been shown to be really effective in managing alcohol use issues. Uh, but I would continue to recommend incorporating that in context with treatment. Uh, remember that medications for opioid use disorders are the gold standard at this point in time, that we should be thinking about incorporating this where we can. Uh, what is the other word for, oh, for that medication? Yeah, so the, the brand name is Vivitrol. The generic name is Naltrexone. <clears throat> so Vivitrol is the brand name, Naltrexone is the, the generic name question. You have in your slide packet a bunch of other slides about stigma uh, that I'm not going to go over because you can go through that on your own. And we actually have a, a whole separate stigma and cultural humility training. Um, I don't know if that's being offered anytime soon, but I would, I would encourage you to take a look at our website. Uh, try to sign up for that training if you're interested in that. We wanted to incorporate stigma as a conversation in today's training because these two discussions aren't mutually exclusive as you're trying to get somebody uh, thinking about potential use of medications. Uh, but if you're interested in learning more, read through those slides. I'm happy to answer questions about those via email as you look through them. They're included for your reference. Uh, I just want to take a minute to thank our wonderful team. And thank you to all of you for participating in the training today. Great questions, uh, wonderful discussion. Uh, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me. Be well, take care. We'll talk to you all soon. Thanks, everybody.